Hello all. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Whenever you are watching this podcast and wherever you're watching this podcast, whether it's on YouTube or Spotify or wherever you watch or listen to your podcasts, I want to say uh, hi. And also sorry that it's a little bit late. As you know, Toronto yesterday had this massive internet collapse. Well, we had this one company in, in Canada. There's really only two internet companies, which is a big problem that we don't often talk about. But anyways, um, and one of them crashed. And so it was pandemonium. Um, not only could I not record, but I could not upload. And then today, just catching up and all those kinds of things. So, uh, but we're here. And we are on the 13th episode of a 20 episode season. I'm very excited. Today, we're going to talk about the harpies and the furies. I'm going to try and keep it brief. I was looking at my notes today. And um, I thought to myself, holy crap, you know, I'm used to doing three hour lectures, you know, and when I was first starting just as a side note story time, when I was first starting as a professor at university, um, I would have these three hour lectures, you know, and, and a one hour tutorial throughout the week. And I would think to myself, oh, my God, how am I going to fill three hour lectures? Uh, because there was just so much it felt like there was so much to fill in. And so I, you know, as all young professors, I had PowerPoints and PowerPoints and PowerPoints of notes, which uh, between you and me were notes for myself so that I would remember. And now, maybe a decade or so later, I'm is the opposite. You know, I'm putting up just pictures again, more to guide me through. Carla, stop talking about that. Let's move on. And then I do carry some notes with me normally in class. Um, I don't even carry the notes with me, but because I'm sort of telling you a story and I like story time every now and then, I like to have my notes with me and just for confirmation with myself, because even though, you know, we are academics and we have PhDs and we spend so much time in the ancient world and so much time studying things, you would be amazed how blurry things get. Uh, and if anyone out there that's listening to me, that's a teacher or even an ancient history or mythology fan, uh, sometimes the stories get blurred, the dates, the dates get blurred, the authors get blurred. Um, and so sometimes I, I, I take a pause where I'm like pausing for three seconds, trying to remember what am I saying to these guys? When was that? What, did, what comes next? So that happens a lot. So notes are very helpful. Uh, so that's a long way to say hello. Um, if you don't know who I am and you're new, I would like to say hello to actually all of our new followers. Thank you so much for following me. And I hope that you'll enjoy this podcast and future podcasts to come. So my name is Carla Ionescu. I am um, a professor of ancient history at York University in Toronto and, and a few other universities because I, you know, all of us are in contract associate professor mode. And so I teach at the university. And in my spare time, um, I write and I do research on the goddess Artemis. Actually, let me grab my book. <clears throat> so this is my newest book, uh, She Who Hunts. Let me put it back here. Very, very excited to tell the story of Artemis. Um, so you can grab this anywhere, Amazon, Indigo, wherever you buy your books. So I'm very excited about that. Oh, I'm also very excited. I took my logo because I love it so much. And I made it into a phone case, right? Isn't it so cool? It's so cool. Uh, you can get these for your phone, whatever phone you have on uh, the Artemis Center. I I'm, I run the, uh, the Artemis Center, which is now just sort of softly launching. It will be ideally a place where um, there'll be a lot of Artemis information. Um, I'm going to build in a, a map of Artemis's temples, and I'm actually just working on an, a library or a database of Artemis articles. So it's going to be all kinds of stuff. And then um, there's going to be courses on there for goddess work um, and, and other things that come up, you know, and one of the things that we have, of course, is the store, which is why I mentioned that uh, this podcast came about the goddess project podcast is literally a goddess project. And it came about out of all the enthusiasm that I have to talk about goddesses that I don't always get a chance to do in class um, because sometimes the curriculum of specific classes doesn't allow for the kind of fun that we're having here and so I thought that I would do this and I would also be able to share this with anybody who doesn't 
want to take a course at a university, but still interested in goddesses and ancient history and particularly Greco-Roman history. Yeah. Uh, so this is episode 13 out of 20. Like I said, I was thinking of doing a finale for episode 20 or even 21 depends. I was thinking of doing a finale where I would answer your questions. So please let me know in the comments if that's something that you think is a great idea. So what I was going to do is I was going to start promoting that from this with this week. We still have at least six weeks to go. And so I would start promoting it, promoting and collecting questions. And then the questions could be about anything. Literally it could be any of the pad, past podcasts. It could be something about me or my work, as long as it's not too personal. Uh, but, you know, anything about like studying or, I don't know, uh, traveling and researching um, goddesses in the, in the Greek world or mythology or anything that maybe you've, that has come up for you in one of these podcasts where you're like, oh, uh, this has been something that I've been thinking about. What do you think? So it could, it could be any questions. And what I was going to do for the finale for our last episode of the season, I was going to collect the questions and then answer them as best and as fun as I can anonymously, of course. Uh, so you can submit your questions to me. Um, but let me know too, if you want it to be anonymously, but I thought they would should be probably anonymously anyways. Uh, so what's coming up next for the sort of rest of our um, season, I'm going to I have a short list. So I'm going to do next week, we're going to do Cersei, or Kirky. Uh, we're going to do or Cerst, however people want to say it, uh, we're going to do Medea. Where's my list? Medea. I want to do Nike too. Nobody ever really talks about Nike, uh, the goddess. Sorry, I'm just putting up my list. So Circe, um, Medea, oh, uh, Antigone, or yes, Antigone. And where is that? Four, five. Um, and then I've been thinking about doing a couple of nymphs too. So we have quite a bit to still go through, which is a lot of fun. There's You never run out of stories. I wanted to do maybe a couple of stories too. There's a couple of stories of lovers, uh, particularly in Artemis's temples that I thought that maybe we could look at. Uh, so I have a couple of slots that are open that uh, will kind of just come up as we, as we move forward, you know? Um, sometimes uh, stuff just comes to me as, I mean, I finished reading Madeline Miller's book. Oh, and I'm starting to read Ariadne. So that might be something that we can add uh, to, to our, to our season. All right. So I'm going to share my slides. So if you're watching it on YouTube, here we are. If you're listening to it, we are beginning. The title of this episode is the Furies and Harpies Screaming Women. Okay. Because that's sort of the theme that I've been seeing. <laughs> Screaming angry women. And I think that theme is so relevant right now. Uh, we are very angry and we are screaming, though I feel like we could probably scream a little bit more. Um, I also want to mention to you that most of the sources that I'm using are primary source. One of my favorite places to pull primary source from is uh, theoi.com. So if you've never heard of it, please feel free to visit. Um, and I use primary source, I think, for two reasons. First reason is because I'm the kind of historian that wants to find the very first thing that is written about whatever I'm studying. And so I like to trace my way back and then work my way forward. And so I guess you could say that I trust the ancient or first, first level of primary sources, the archaic primary sources of the ancient world. I trust those more than anything else, because what happens, of course, and you know this, as we move forward through time, there's a lot of interpretation and reinterpretation and recycling and re-everything. And so I think it's important to look at stories like we're going to talk about the Furies, for example, in popular culture in a minute, and the Harpies, actually. But if you don't know the root of this particular, let's say in this case, a creature or a demigod or a daemon, you're easily convinced or fooled by modern material. 
And so one of my searches as an academic has always been to reach as far back as possible. And actually, when I do my temple research, when I travel and I do my temple research, or even I go to, when I go to museums and I find a piece that is said to be coming from this place, and then I go look that up and then I try and find a primary source. And so there's a lot of work in trying to um, not validate, that's the wrong word, but just try and be as accurate as possible. But what is the earliest interpretation of this particular mythology or that particular God? And I think it's important that we go back. It's important that we look at the roots and it's important that we tell ourselves the stories that the ancients were told. And in fact, I just had a conversation with someone on, on Instagram about how important it is that we look at the earliest versions of stories and how important it is that we go back to the earliest versions of stories and work our way forward from there. Um, and so I use a lot of primary source. I hope that you're okay with that. I think it's the most trustworthy source, if we can trustworthy, if we can say that. But um, it is still an interpretation, of course. It is still an impression. It is still cultural. It still requires cultural context. It still requires language context. But, you know, this is not a course. So uh, this is meant to be fun. So I try to give you as much academic material, but also sort of freestyle talking yeah freestyle lecturing about it uh because well that's partially because that's my style of teaching but also because that's the way I like to discuss ancient artwork or ancient divinities or ancient anything yeah so let's start with the harpies we start with the harpies because they scream um perhaps the loudest. And so we're going to start with them first. So the harpy or the harpy eye were spirits or daemons or yes, daemons uh, that were associated with sudden sharp gusts of wind. Now they were fearsome female daemons. They were said to have the bodies of birds. So they had wings and then sometimes they were described as having their bottom half as birds. But if you look at some of the ancient or earliest depiction of them, they are really just women with wings. And so since they were known as the hounds of Zeus, they were often dispatched by Zeus to snatch away people or things from Earth. And so often sudden disappearances were attributed to the harpies. You know, if someone disappeared or a child disappeared, especially it meant that the harpies took them away. Uh, they were once sent to plague King Phineus of Thrace or Thraki, which we we're going to talk about in a minute as punishment for revealing a secret to the gods. Um, they were depicted, like I said, as winged women. Sometimes they had ugly faces and sometimes their lower bodies were birds. Certainly throughout history, as we move forward through time, they become more and more bird-like. Now, Hesiod mentions a couple of their names, Aiello, which is a, sto a swift storm, and Asipity, which is a swift wing. Yeah. Virgil later on comes up with another one, which is Selenio, Selenio uh, which is darkness. Yeah. Now, in, in Homer, the harpies are just winds. Okay, They're personified storm winds. And he names only Podridge or Padarge or Padargi. Like I said, there's, a <laughs> there's so many different ways of saying it. Um, who was married to the West Wind, uh, Zephyrus, and he gave, and they gave, she gave birth, they gave birth, no, they did not, she gave birth to the two horses of Achilles, yeah, Sansus and Ballas, and so some of them are a little bit famous, some of them are not, but I think what makes um, harpies infamous, of course, is their, the way that they treat people they don't like or they're sent to hound and also perhaps their smell yeah now some of them are said to have made their homes in islands or on the islands of greece or in the caves of crete and as you all know i'm obsessed with crete so when i first read that i thought to myself oh my god i've been to so many caves in crete but not all not all by by any means there are many many caves in crete um it's a mountainous island 
And when I thought of, when I read that, I thought to myself, oh my goodness. Okay. And when I leave in the fall, I'm adding this to my list of things to find the caves of the harpies. So let's look at their parentage. So who are their parents? Um, there's there's different stories about who their parents are. Some of them are said to be the daughters of Thaumas by the Oceanide Electra. Um, and this is where they are said to have gained their bird-like features. Okay. Some of them, like I said, are described as birds with the heads, with the heads of maidens and long claws on their feet and their hands. Uh, sometimes they are said to be the daughters of Poseidon. There's, there's a little bit of uh, variation. And particularly when we're talking about storm gods or a storm of any kind, uh, this is when parentage is attributed to them. So it makes sense that Poseidon is attributed to them or any kind of storm or heavy wind god is attributed to them or any kind of ocean god is attributed to them. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Phineus. And and Phineus reminds me of, uh, there was a TV show when my kid was small. Was it? it I feel like saying Phineus and Butthead, but that's not, that's another one. That was when I was small. Um, Beavis and Butthead, that's what that one was called. But there was a show, I have to ask my kid. Phineus sounds like such a, a familiar name. There was a show for kids when, when they were young. So one of the most celebrated stories in which the harpies play a part is that of Phineas. And he is the man that gave away secrets of the gods. And as punishment, so he's punished by the gods, um, Zeus sends his harpies. And what happens, of course, is that every time that Phineas sits down to eat, (laughs) the harpies sweep in and take his food, okay? Um, And they destroy it. They throw it away. And then he complains that they smell so bad that even if they left him any food, he couldn't even stand to eat it. And so I thought about this, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to read you the story in a minute because it's just, it's kind of hilarious. And then the Argonauts come and save him and all that kind of thing. Um, but it's kind of hilarious, this concept of angry women taking a man's food, right? Um, in slang, you know, like when you take my food, often that refers to taking my money, taking my wealth taking something I've worked for. And, and actually it doesn't have to even be slang. If you think about, you know, uh, the ancient world and, and how you acquired food. And even today, actually, what am I saying? Uh, you acquire that usually through some type of work. <laughs> and so the idea that these angry women, that this, uh, that every time you sit down, your food is taken away by these angry screaming bird, like women, and that there's nothing you can do about it. And that you really can't even eat. Um, and your halls smell bad and they're screaming and, and screeching like birds um, is quite a punishment. It's quite a torturous punishment. And it's just a little bit funny. It's a little bit funny. So I'm going to uh, read you the Argonautica version. There's a few versions, but I'm going to read you the Argonautica version. So um Apollo had once endowed endowed, endowed this man, King Phineas, King Phineas, with prophetic powers. But the gift had brought on him the most appalling tribulations. For he showed no reverence even for Zeus, Phineas, whose sacred purposes he did not scruple to disclose in full to all. So he was just giving away God's secrets. Yeah. Zeus punished him for this by giving him a lingering old age without a boon of sight, okay? Without the boon of sight, so he can't see. He even robbed him of such pleasure as he might have got from the many dainties which neighbors kept bringing to his house when they came there to consult the oracle. So he was a blind oracle, yeah? And people came to give him food or little dainties of pastries or whatever, and he could not enjoy them because on every occasion, the harpy swooped down through the clouds and snatched the food from his mouth and hands with their beaks, sometimes leaving him not a morsel, sometimes a few scraps, so that he might live and be tormented. They gave a loathsome stench to everything. What bits were left emitted such a smell that no one could have borne to put them in his mouth or even to come near. And then the Argonauts arrive. 
And when the Argonauts arrive, King Phineas says, I beseech you to help me to save a luckless man from degradation and not to pass an uncon- on unconcernedly and leave me as I am. Not only has the fury quenched my sight, we're going to talk about that in a minute, so that I drag myself through my last years in misery. But over and above all, this I am the victim of another curse, which plagues me more than everything else. Harpies who live in some abominable hunt that lie beyond our ken swoop down on me and snatch the food from my lips. There's nothing I can do to stop them. It would be easier for me when I am hungry to forget my appetite than it would be to escape from them. So swiftly did they dart down from the sky. Reminds me of seagulls. Actually, if you ever try to have French fries in a parking lot with seagulls, good luck. Yeah. And if they leave me any food at all, it stinks of putrefaction. The smell is intolerable. And not once could no one could bear it to come near it, even for a minute, even if he had an adamant will. Yet bitter necessity that cannot be gainsaid not only keeps me here, but forces me to pamper my accursed belly. Okay. Now there's an oracle that says that the harpy shall be dealt with the two sons of Boreas, the north wind. No unknown foreigner shall drive them off. So then the Boradzetes says to Phineas, we should be quick to help you. We're going to talk about Boreads in a minute. If it were true that we are destined for this honor. So it's an honor to get rid of the harpies. Yet the thought fills us with dismay. No one is left in doubt when heaven is punishing a mortal man. So you may have earned this punishment, my friend. I don't know why we should save you. And for all our eagerness, we dare not undertake to foil the harpy when they come. Unless you can assure us on oath that by doing so, we shall not lose the favor of the gods. The old man opened his sightless eyes and raising them, thought to look in his face and replied to Zetis, kind of looked like he was looking in his face. Say no more, my child, he said. I beg you not to entertain such fears. I swear that you will not incur the wrath of heaven by helping me. So reassured by these oaths, the pair, the two Board brothers, were eager to take up his cause. The younger members of the party of the Argonauts immediately prepared a meal for the old man. Then the last pickings that the harpy were to get from him that's right. So the, yeah. And then Zetis and Callias, the two brothers, took their stand beside him, ready to smite them with their sword when they attacked. And Phineas had scarcely taken the first morsel up when, with as little warning as a whirlwind or a lightning flash, they dropped from the clouds, proclaiming their desire for food with raucous cries. The young lord saw them coming and raised alarm, yet they had hardly done so before the harpy had devoured the whole meal and were on the wing once more far out to sea. All they left was an incredible stench. Raising their swords, the two sons of Boreas flew in pursuit. Zeus gave them indefatigable, indefatigable strength, so they were not tired. <laughs> Indeed, without his aid, there could have been no chase. For whenever the harpy comes to Phineas' house or leaves, they outstrip the storm winds from the west. But Zetis and Calais very nearly caught them. They even touched them though to little purpose, with their fingertips like a couple of keen hounds on a hillside, hot on the track of a horned goat or a deer, pressing close behind the quarry and snapping at empty air. Yet even with heaven against them, the long chase would certainly have ended in their tearing the harpy to pieces when they overtook them. But for Iris of the swift feet, who when she saw them, leapt down from Olympus through the sky and checked them with her swords. With her words, not swords. Oh my gosh, there's a Freudian slip. Words are swords. Sons of Boreas, you may not touch the harpy with your swords. They are the hounds of almighty Zeus. But I myself will undertake an oath that never again shall they come near Phineas. And she went on to swear by the waters of Styx, which is the biggest oath you can take, that the harpy should never visit Phineas's house again, such being fate's decree. This oath prevailed upon the noble brothers who wheeled around and set their course for safety and the ship. And this is the reason why the floating isles have changed their name now to the islands of return. Okay? The harpy and the and iris went their different ways. And the harpies withdrew to a den in Minoan Crete, okay? a cave. So very, very fascinating story about, well, a fun story. Maybe it's not fascinating. <laughs> Let's be honest, but it's fun um, about these screeching hound birds of Zeus that are trying to steal Phineas's food. 
and harassing him until the Boreas brothers come. Now, I really wanted to, and I tagged this slide, this next part, Angels and Demons, because what really fascinates me, and, if, and I have here in front of me a picture of Michelangelo's um, twins, Boreas twins chasing the harpies. You can Google that if you like, but you can even look up any image of the Borads chasing the harpies. What's really fascinating to me about this image is two things. Number one, the Borads twins are literally the depictions of our modern day angels, right? They're depicted as these young men, um, muscular, tall, well, by Michelangelo here, they're blonde. They have these wings, these white, beautiful wings, and they fly and they have swords. They're really the the angel, you know, the, the epitome of the angel symbol. Okay. And they're chasing these other flying creatures that are female. Now in Michelangelo's version, it's half bird, half woman, but in, in the ancient version. And, and if you look up some of the ancient depictions, what there's really no difference between the, the Borad brothers and the harpies. And so I thought about angels and demons and our concept of angels and demons, particularly because the harpies are, are daemons. Now, daemons, of course, is the word that later on in English becomes the word demons, but daemons in Greek really just refers to something like godlike or a spirit, like day as in gods. And then if we can say man as in man, but don't say that as a Greek translation. <laughs> but the idea of daemons is that they were lower gods or, or lesser spirits. Okay. They were not human and they were not Olympians and, or Titans or whatever. And so then we have the daemon somehow become particularly in, you know, dark medieval Europe, they become demons, but the Boreas brothers remain angelic in form. And so I want you to think about that sort of duality that happens here, that the females that have wings that are flying are in this negative depiction as demons. And later on through time, they become demons, right? And yet the twins in this case remain angelic and perhaps inspire um, angelic uh, connotations. Yeah. So the Borads, uh, or the Wind Brothers, as they were called, are, of course, Zethes and Calais, right? And their father is Boraz, which is the North Wind. Now, they are, according to ancient texts, they're credited with very delicate and graceful hair. And this was said to allow them to fly. Uh, they have long curls, right? And they have beautiful hair. They're, like I said, they have dusky wings that gleam with golden scales. So golden white wings and curly light blonde hair. I mean, could we say angels in any other way, right? And they are famous for their heroism, right? They are constantly, um, they're a part of the Argonaut teams, but they're constantly, what do you call it? Um, flying around, uh, you know, doing heroic deeds um, and saving people. Um, they, and they, they talk to gods and they have all of these kinds of, uh, uh, what do you call it? Important places in the history and the, the history of heroes. Now there is a history that there are some versions, there are different possibilities for their, for the end of their, their life. Their death sometimes is said to be caused by Heracles on tennis in revenge for when they convinced the Argonauts to leave him behind as he searched for Hillis. So when Hercules was searching for Hillis, his cousin slash lover, um, the Borat twins said, let's go and let's just leave him behind. So there's a theory that Her Heracles came and uh, killed them afterwards as punishment for that. Other sources imply that when they were, they died chasing the harpies. And so they, that it was fated that they would perish if they fail to catch them, but that's sort of, you know, uh, a more of a side story. There's a story that says that the harpies fell into the water and that the two brothers followed them in. And then there is a rare variant of this myth by Tzetzis that says that the old man, Phineos, who was blind, of course, had two daughters named Iraseya and Harpiria. 
these two lived in a very libertine and lazy lives, which was all wasted. So ultimately, the sisters abandoned themselves into poverty and fatal famine and were eventually snatched out by Zetes and Calais, disappearing from those places ever since. So there's this kind of weird story that Phineas spoiled his daughters to such degree that when he was gone, they became sort of homeless, but then they were snatched up by these angelic brothers and they disappeared with them. Really interesting. Uh, in popular culture, the Borats continue to mesmerize us. Of course they do. They appear in Rick Riordan's uh, Heroes of Olympus series, uh, where they reside in Quebec City. Now, if anyone's been to Quebec City, that's a really interesting choice. They're there with their sister. Not that there's anything wrong with Quebec City. It's very pretty. It's just an interesting choice for uh, flying twins around the world. They're there with their sister Kione and their father Boreas, of course. Um, and then after their death, we are told that their father transforms them into immortal demigods that act as his lieutenants in this particular book of Rick Riordan's. So a fascinating side story of these angelic boys um, that, you know, chase the harpies away and then sort of fall off um, the grid now the harpies another story that's really famous about the harpies is of course that they stole the daughters of pandareus now there's not much to be said about this um it's a really fairly short story that talks about them uh snatching up and carrying the daughters away now according to the story the daughters of pandareus um the gods killed their father, King Pandareus, and his wife, their mother, after the king stole a bronze dog from Zeus. So, again, something, you know, a crime against Zeus. His daughters, Cleodora and Merope, Merope, were spared and raised by several of the Greek goddesses on Mount Olympus, particularly Aphrodite. When the girls reached an age to be married off, Aphrodite went to seek permission from Zeus for the marriages. But while she was gone, the harpies came and took the daughters to become servants of the Furies. Okay. So very, very interesting. This, this kind of small side story that never really makes it uh, into anything, in, into anywhere, really. But again, really fascinating because this is very woman-on-woman kind of crime idea, right? Uh, And the fact that the daughters were raised uh, in Mount Olympus and yet Zeus said nothing about the harpies stealing them and taking them down to the Furies is really fascinating as well. So harpies, you know, originally referred to this creature uh, that had this ability to snatch people away or snatch food away or whatever. But as we move forward through time, what we see is that the harpy becomes um, a monster of harassment and a shrieking voice. So whenever you see harpies or hear about harpies, whether it's in film or Hollywood or TV shows or whatever, or even fiction, the one thing that you hear about harpies is their screeching, screeching voice. Of course, a woman, usually a woman, that is often demanding and very rude. And this reminds me of the striga. So, you know, as some of you know, I'm Romanian. I come from Eastern Europe. And in Eastern Europe, we have this sort of Slavic tales that come out of more of the Polish uh, traditions originally. Well, originally, of course, Greece and Rome, but uh, then sort of the Polish traditions. And we have the Striga traditions. And actually, in Romanian, if you want to say scream, the way that you say scream is Striga. So you say like, um, Striga la Carla, yell at Carla, or call, actually. It's not even yell. Because yell in Romanian is tsip, like that got tsip la cineva. Um, but striga la cineva means like call somebody, right? And so in Slavic culture, uh, a striga is an eerie creature, often a bird or an, an owl. It has a bird or owl-like feature. So it comes out of this ancient Greek culture. It has big claws and it's merciless in nature. Uh, you can usually find them in barns, in woods, and cr- at crossroads, of course, are some of her favorite places in the night. One of the things about crossroads that's really fascinating is that's also where you find daemons. And if any of you watch Supernatural, crossroads is, crossroads is always where the brothers find demons. Oh, my God. And now I just thought about this idea that in Supernatural, 
the two brothers are sort of like the Borad twins. Okay, they don't have wings, although I can't remember if Sam or Dean ever had wings. Maybe Sam did. But they are kind of immortal. They're kind of, you know, throughout the series. I don't want to ruin it for you if you haven't seen it. But anyways, they come back to life all the time. They fight bad demons. What an interesting... What an interesting connection. Sorry, I just made that connection right now <laughs> in real time with you guys, right? It's so fascinating when you think about how that plays into popular culture. Um, anyways, in Polish culture, um, there is um, another there's another version in which the Striga is a demon quite similar to vampires, but in many ways even nastier. So unlike vampires, the Striga in Polish culture is a female demon that has two lines or two rows of teeth. Uh, during the night, she's a shapeshifter. She turns into an owl and hunts down anyone unlucky enough to be outside. Now, if you've ever seen The Witcher, I hope you've all seen The Witcher. It's so fantastic. Or read the book by Alexander Bruckner. Uh, there is a word there derived from the sticks for a Latin, which is Latin for owl or bird-like creature. And there is a um, a creature, a striga or a strix in uh, the story of the witcher who tries to attack him. Yeah. Um, so across Eastern Europe, if you're talking about a striga in some way or a strix in some way or a strigada, these are usually some type of female screeching bird monster vampires with rows of teeth um, that want to kill you. Now, in the witcher, that monster has no female qualities when it attacks um the witcher whose name now escapes me. Uh, but um, usually they appear in this half woman, half bird. Yeah. Okay. So let's just look up some final interesting facts about harpies that I found that are really, really cool and interesting. Okay. What are some other interests, a little interesting facts? My favorite one, of course, is Dante's Inferno. So in Dante's Inferno, Dante describes a scene where he writes, here the repellent harpies make their nests, who drove the Trojans from the Strophides with dire announcements of the coming woe. They have broad wings, a human neck and face, clawed feet and swollen feathered bellies. They claw and caw their lamentations in the eerie trees. So there is a connection here, and I'm using this photograph um, on the on my left side, which is called the Wood of the Self Murderers, the Harpies and the Suicides, and I thought this was so incredible because there are it reminds me of the suicide woods in Japan and this idea of it's a combination of the suicide woods in Japan and this idea that there are entities inside the trees. Now this particular piece of art is a watercolor on paper. Uh, and it's by a painter and printmaker, William Blake from the 1700s. And he completed it actually in early 1820s, 1824. And it's a, it's, it illustrates the passage that I just read for you from uh, in the Inferno, um, a passage from the Inferno of the Divine Comedy by Dante. But what's really interesting is that this particular um, image shows that the harpies feed from the leaves of the oak trees, which entomb suicides, okay? Now, at the time, and even today, in the Catholic tradition, suicide is a primal sin, okay? So you do not commit suicide. It's considered um, equivalent to self-murder, okay? And of course, it's in contravention of the commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not kill. So it was always considered to be a deep sin, even deeper than murder, okay? Because it... it it's almost like you rejected your um, your own livelihood. But Dante alludes to this by placing the self-murder um, in the seventh circle of hell and blah, blah, blah. And there's all this religious uh, connotation around it. But what's really fascinating is that Dante describes this tortured forest that is infested with harpies, okay, where the act of self-murder is punished by by encasing the offender in a tree okay thus they are denied eternal life and damning the soul to an eternity as a member of a restless living dead but in particular that they are prey to the harpies 
Okay. So it is a, like a forest where people are entombed in trees for committing self-murder. And so this art, both of these pieces of art, which don't show any self-murder, by the way, but have this, this tragic association between being trapped sort of in a tree for eternity and then harpies kind of sitting on the trees and screeching all day long. And if we were to believe, you know, the ancient Greeks stinking up the place all day long. So this is sort of that torturous um, afterlife event or imagery that Dante is trying to uh, evoke here, which is quite fascinating and a bit disturbing at the same time. Um, Other interesting facts about harpies is um, that the Romans and, of course, in the Byzantine writers continue detailing their ugliness and monstrous qualities in the Aeneid, Aeneas encounters the harpies and they, as they make off with the feast uh, that the Trojans were setting up and uh, they flee in fear away from the mythical beasts. Later on, Shakespeare brings them up a couple of times in Met to Do About Nothing. The term harpy is used metaphorically to refer to a nasty or annoying woman. And though not often used in modern vernacular, it is understood that this is what the term currently describes. Like I said, in The Witcher, it comes up, the harpies come up in the God of War series. Uh, there are also harpies that are encountered at villains, as villains. Blah, blah. Uh, and a really interesting, uh, more scientific sort of biological paleontological fact, uh, the word has a modern usage, uh, which refers more to the harpy's form rather than its behavior. There's a species of raptor found a raptor from the dinosaur age found in the rainforest of Central South America that is named the harpy eagle. And the animal gained its name primarily from its enormous size. It has a wingspan of up to 17 feet um, and large enough to be nearly human when perched on a tree, right? That's really fascinating um, that harpies and the term harpy has become quite prevalent, I would say, in our culture. Okay, so let's move on to the Furies from one type of screaming woman to a more angry woman or the Erinyes. So the Erinyes also fascinatingly have wings. Some of them do, sometimes they don't. Um, They were three goddesses or more goddesses. So again, in the early periods, they weren't defined by a number. They were just a group of women. But as we get into the Roman period and further, they become three goddesses. They were goddesses of vengeance and retribution who punished men for crimes against the natural order. So they were quite a a powerful force in ancient Greek mythologies. And they were seen as divine vengeance or divine of vengeance on anybody who swore false false oaths, for example. So if you broke your promise or your oath, but most importantly, they, they um, avenged relationships, okay, such as parent and child, guest and host, the young and the old. These were very serious violations uh, for ancient Greeks. And so particularly around homicide or matricide and patricide, unfilial conduct, so the way that you behaved with your family, of course, offenses against the God and any perjuries. So anybody that was seeking justice could call on the Furies to avenge them and and turn their vengeance on the criminal. Now, the most powerful of this, of course, is um, the curse of the parent on a child. And we're told that the the Erinyes were born of of just such a crime, being sprung from the blood of Uranus when he was castrated by his son, Cronus. Do I have a slide for that? Yeah, I do. Okay, so we'll get to that in a minute. Now, their wrath manifested in a number of ways. Of course, the most severe of this is torment, a tormenting madness inflicted upon a patricide or a matricide. So murderers would suffer an illness or a disease. Any nation or village that harbored such a criminal could suffer dearth. So uh, plants wouldn't grow. 
crops wouldn't grow, animals wouldn't be birthed, uh, hunger and disease would, would come. And so the wrath of the Irenes or the Furies could only be placated with a rite ritual of purification and some kind of completion of atonement. Uh, so for example, and this is a little sidetrack, when Heracles kills his family, I don't know if many of you know that Heracles kills his family. Maybe we'll do one on him, even though he's technically not a goddess or anything to do with goddesses. But uh, Heracles, supposedly in a fit of rage given to him by Hera, but it's you know, just really Heracles is a rageful dude. Um, he kills his wife and children. And as atonement for that familial murder, um, and so that he doesn't get tormented for eternity by the Furies, he has to do the labors of Hercules. And so he does 12 labors. Um, and so in a weird way, in the old days, if you did a deed, in the case of Heracles, uh, a heroic deed, you could erase the crime of murder, uh, fa particularly familial murder, but any kind of murder uh, from your soul or your fate or whatever. Yeah. The, the Furies are also chthonic deities. Again, so there are these fascinating sort of daemons or de deities in the sense that they're not Olympians, they're not Titans, but they're this abstract sort of divinity. And so they're chthonic deities because they were associated with the underworld. So any god that is associated with an, uh, the underworld is a chthonic deity, as well as agriculture. So People, uh, gods like Persephone, Hades, Demeter, etc., and sometimes even Hermes, because he takes people to the underworld, are considered chthonic deities. And the Furies um, work sometimes alongside Persephone, or as we'll see, they also stand at the gates of Hades and um, judge uh, people. Sometimes they were the servants of Hades and Persephone in the sense that they oversaw the torture of the criminals. Uh, that were considered damned for life. And so they were the, the torture supervisors. <laughs> yeah. uh, so they're often depicted as ugly, winged women again. So winged women. So there's something about wings. So this is why I want to talk about Nike, because I feel like winged women so far, certainly in our series, have often been monstrous. And um, I want to talk about why some women who have wings are victory and someone who have wings, particularly in this case, are not. So they were depicted as ugly winged women with hair, lots of hair, because God forbid women have hair. They had hairs, uh, they, sorry, they had snakes, in poisonous snakes entwined around their arms and waist. So again, sometimes in their hair everywhere. Yeah. They wielded whips and were clothed either in a long black robe, which is the color of mourners, or short length skirts and boots, which is uh, what huntresses and maidens wore. So it's a weird depiction, different kind of depiction. Yeah. Uh, like I said, there's no, there's no set amount of women. Usually it was like a group of angry women, which can be quite fearsome if you've ever had a group of angry women come at you. But then over time, they begin to be associated with a group of three. Um, and this is mostly because Virgil's uh, epic poem, The Aeneid, uh, refers to them as three. So when we think of them as three, it's more in those Roman terms, right? Uh, they have, uh, we're going to talk about their names in a second. So they were raised from primordial blood. Okay. So if we're going to look at the three, they have names. They're named certainly in, by Virgil, they're named. So Alecto, Megara, and Tisiphone, or Tisiphon, Tisiphon, but I'm going to call her Tisiphon, Tisiphone. Uh, Megara is interesting because she's also in the movie, um, um, the Disney movie, Hercules. Uh, I think that's the name. Is that the name of Hercules's girlfriend? Is it Megara? Oh my goodness. I'm sorry. I haven't watched uh, a Disney movie since I was Disney age. Um, so those are the three. Yeah. Electo stands for anger, Megara for jealousy, and Tisiphone for avenger. Yeah. So they were raised from primordial blood because, uh, like I said, when Kronos killed his father or castrated his father Oronos and then threw his testicles into the sea, we know that that's how Aphrodite was formed, supposedly from the foam. Don't ask me why the testicles that hit the sea created foam and then Aphrodite came. Uh, that is a very long, long answer. And maybe when we look at Aphrodite, we'll talk about all of the pre-Greek and archaic 
connections that Aphrodite is built into um, or comes from. And, and so this is why that story makes no sense in, in a way. But from that same violence against Uranus's testicles, uh, there was blood and the blood that dropped in the sea formed the Furies. So that's one of their, uh, that's one of their uh, origin story. And then sometimes they, we are also told that they are the daughters of Nyx and Nyx is the goddess of night. And she is um, a fearsome, uh, fearsome divinity of darkness. And so it, it makes sense in a way that she may be their mother. Now, all the variations of the origin stories tell us that the Furies are actually a primordial, earlier, pre-Greek um, divinity or group of divinities that existed way, way, way uh, before the Greeks arrived. And they play an essential role in society because, especially because they avenge. So the very fright of them, they're really the boogeyman in the closet that keeps people from committing some type of violent act. And so they played a very important role in the fear of keeping people in, you know, in the fear that kept people in check, right? From committing, you know, from killing their mothers, fathers, sisters, cousins, brothers, sons, etc. Okay. Um, and so they're considered quite fearsome. And you definitely don't want them um, uh, coming for you or your family because we are told that they never, ever, ever let up. They never let up. Yeah. We're told that there's even a, sh a shrine to them under um, Aeropagus in Athens, where Athenian judicial cases were heard and where the council voted uh, in matters of government. And so many ways, they may have been the Greek version of our justice figure that stands in our courtrooms uh, with the scales. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit briefly uh, about the way that they scared men, particularly, of course, Orestes. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about Hades before we get to Orestes, because Orestes drives me nuts. Um, but let's talk about the way that they scare men. First of all, when the dead first arrive to Hades, they appear before three judges. Okay. And then they're handed over to the Aranes and the Furies who purified the good of their sins and let them pass, but dragged those adjudged to be wicked or assigned to be wicked to the Tartarian dungeon of the damned. They were also the jailers of this prison house. And like I said, oversaw the torture inflicted here. So they're quite fearsome. So I'm going to read to you a couple of ways that they're described by the ancients. So this is Aeschylus's uh, described, uh, description in the libation bearers. He says, ah, you handmaidens, look at them there like gorgons wrapped in sable garments entwined with swarming snakes. And then Strabo talks about people who wear black cloaks, go clad in tunics that reach their feet, wear belts around their breasts, walk with canes and resemble the goddesses ponai vengeances in tragedies. Pausanias says, though, that the Erinys, Erinys, it was Aeschylus who first represented them with snakes in their hair. But in the cult images, neither of these nor any of the underworld deities is there anything terrible, which is why I love Pausanias to this day. He's like, yeah, you know, Aeschylus talked about all that and he created this big image. But really, if you look around at the cult images, which implies that there were temples to them and certainly cult images to them, he says there's nothing like that. And even other underworld deities are not depicted frighteningly. And we know this if we look at, for example, the depictions of Hades, the depictions of Hades. If you, look, if you put statues of the ancient world of Hades, Poseidon, and Zeus side by side, you could not, and they take away anything that they're holding in their hands, you could not tell the difference. So today we tend to think of Hades, especially when we represent him in popular culture or Hollywood, we tend to think of him as like scary or frightening or skeletal or something, but he wasn't. He was just as good looking as his brothers. Yeah. Uh, Ovid, of course, because the Romans love, love, love their depictions and his metamorphoses. He does this really, really in-depth depiction where he says that the nightborn sisters, they were divinities implacable, doom laden, 
they sat guarding the dungeons, the dungeon door and combed the black snakes hanging in their hair. Could you imagine them combing the black snakes in their hair? Anyway, Tisiphon, Tisiphony, disheveled as she was, shook her white hair and tossed aside the snakes that masked her face. Then she seized a torch steeped in blood, put on a robe, all red with dripping gore and wound a snake about her wrist, her waist. Oh my God. The baleful Irene stood stretching her arms entwined with tangled snakes and shaking out her hair. The snakes dislodged, gave hissing sounds. Some crawled upon her shoulders. Some gliding around her bosom, vomited a slime of venom, flickering their tongues and hissing horribly. Then from her hair, she tore out two of them. With a doom-charged aim, she darted them. She darted them at two uh, people that were imprisoned in Tartarus. And they were winding and twisting. And they exhaled some kind of noisome breath. Yet they wouldn't bite. They just made you go mad. The Tiffany brought with her poisons too of magic power. Lip froth ew, from Cerebrus, Cerberus. The echidna venom. Ugh, wild deliriums. Blindness of the brain and crime and tears and maddened lust for murder. All ground up, mixed with fresh blood, boiled in a pan of bronze and stirred with green hemlock, stirred with a green hemlock stick. And while the prisoner shuddered there, she poured the poison brew, that broth of madness over both their breasts, right down into their hearts. Then round and round, she waved her torch. Fire, following brandished fire, she went and loosened the snake she fastened around her waist. I mean, that's frightening. That's a horror movie right there. The way that Ovid describes that, uh, it actually reminds me of the witches of Macbeth, you know, sitting around the cauldron, right? Stirring um, whatever is in, in the cauldron. Um, but they were quite fearsome and they were constantly built into more and more frightening beings. Um, so it was quite, quite fascinating. Let's get to Aeschylus's play. Yeah. I think that's one of the last things we're talking about. Perfect. So in Aeschylus's play, um, I'm not going to read any of it, uh, but I'm going to tell you the short story. Some of you, of course, know. And then Euripides writes about the Furies as well. But in Aeschylus's play, even as a young um, undergrad, I was always bothered by what happens to the Furies. And so, um, you know, Agamemnon comes home with Cassandra after the Trojan War. Clytemnestra had married her cousin Aegisthus, but she was raging at him over the death of Iphigenia, which we talked about earlier in one of the podcasts. He had promised to marry her off to Achilles and then sacrificed her, tried to sacrifice her to Artemis, who was pissed off at him because he killed one of her deer. Uh, and right at the point of death, we're told that Artemis swept her away and replaced her with a deer. Uh, but Iphigenia was lost and Clytemnestra was angry. And when Agamemnon came home, she, we are told, uh, enticed him, especially he came home with a girlfriend or a, uh, not a girlfriend because poor Cassandra, my goodness, what a traumatized being she was. But uh, to Clytemestra, it looked like he had brought home a trophy and he was like, oh, I came home, I killed our daughter. And also I brought this young girl that is going to be my lover. Anyways, Clytemestra, who is uh, a fantastic character and in many ways, I stand up clapping, <laughs> right, for her, uh, entices him into a pool um, and then stabs him to death and then unfortunately also stabs Cassandra to death. Um, and so Orestes and Electra arrive home, Electra's Orestes' sister, and they find out what's going on, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, Orestes then kills Agestus, or Agestus, who is um, his uncle-ish, and also kills his mother, and that is matricide. And so the Furies then um, come to avenge the matricide okay and so they chase him and they chase him and he goes to the temple of apollo and apollo goes ah sorry dude can't help you see if athena can help you and so he runs and runs and he finds athena whatever and uh after a, a trial which is the most misogynistic trial i've ever read but aeschylus is not a big fan of women uh, athena declares 
that she has no mother and takes mercy on no woman. There's this trial about whether or not uh, killing your whether or not a woman is really a mother per se or just a carrier. <laughs> so the idea is: is a mother a parent? Uh, or is she just a carrier of the father's seed and therefore the father's child? And so the argument is that if the mother is just a vessel for the sperm or the baby that belongs to the father, then killing the mother is not a family crime. Imagine. I just want you to think as a side note, how far, even at that point, so-called civilizations had come from early archaic goddess cultures, if we can call them that, or more egalitarian tribal cultures, where the idea that the mother is not a parent or an official parent would have been alien, you know, but 2000, 5000, whatever years later, we have this supposed trial where we are debating whether or not the woman is just a vessel, you know, and, and, and 2000 years later, we have, you know, the Roe versus Wade fiasco, where again, the woman is just a vessel. Um, yeah. 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 It's infuriating. Yeah. Pun intended. Um, and so then Athena, the betrayer of all, says, because um, the Furies are like, no, you know, this, this is the... Uh, this is matricide and, and he has to pay, et cetera. We have to take him to Tartarus, et cetera. And Athena steps in and says, uh, she plays sort of judge and jury, although there is a jury, but anyway, Athena plays judge and jury. And she says, well, you know, I have no mother, so I have no association with women, which is bullshit, okay? Because she has a mother, of course, Matisse. Anyways, Athena. One day I'll work on Athena, but it will not be fun. Yeah. Uh, she, so she says, you know, I have no alliance to women. And uh, I cleanse him of this crime, basically. And then furthermore, which is even more infuriating, she turns the Furies into the human humanities, uh, which are then these three graces kind of thing, these three uh, goddesses of domesticity. And she goes, you know, perhaps instead of uh, avenging and, and, and sort of following this course of justice seeking, what you guys will do now, what your responsibility from now will be is to make sure that domestic life goes well, right? So it's basically this domestication of angry, wild women. And what really irks me more than anything is that Athena is the one that changes their fate. And they're supposed to be, according to Aeschylus, anyway, who wrote the play, they're supposed to be very happy with their new, less non-angry, completely domestic, happy-go-lucky stepford wife uh, position. And in that way, Athena does two things. She clears Orestes of his crime, which imply that killing your mother is not as bad as killing your father. In fact, it doesn't imply it, it states it. And then at the same time, um, domesticates the very fearful, fearsome beings that had been in charge of justice forever. And of course, then Athena awards herself. She remains the only one that is both a goddess of so-called wisdom. I don't know what kind of wisdom this is and of justice and of war. Uh, so Athena really places herself centrally as um, the being that really controls much of Athenian morality, Athenian justice, Athenian politics, Athenian, Athenian everything. I mean, it is her city, but um, she really is no friend to women. So before I leave you, I wanted to leave you with um, a popular culture reference. And so I was looking for popular culture references of the Furies um, in in popular culture. Hello. And one of the things that I came across is this film called The Furies uh, of 2019. I think it's a British film, but don't quote me, in which a bunch of women, I don't know, it looks like three women or more. I don't know, maybe eight women, I think it said. I was going to play the trailer for you guys on here, but the trailer is so disturbing uh, that I didn't want to 
you know, post that for some of you who maybe don't want to look at that. But anyway, this movie's called The Furies. It didn't get very great reviews. My husband goes, oh, there's so many movies about this. But basically, these eight women are taken on an island by like, I don't know, these either psycho guys or privileged guys. I'm not sure because the trailer doesn't say. And then they're hunted down on the island. They have to fight back. And so it is in their fury or anger or they're so violent and vicious uh, that the name gets it, that the film gets its name from, which is the Fury. So if you're into gore, because it's gory, check out the trailer of the Furies. Actually, maybe I'll put it in the in the comments, not in the comments, sorry, in the description. Check out the trailer and see if that's something that you want to watch. Um, but that was sort of the most recent depiction of the Furies. If you have any examples of the Furies in recent Hollywood um or popular culture depiction. I would love to hear it in the comments. So that is it for today, guys. We've come to our sort of goodbye slide. I want to thank you for joining me on this podcast. I hope that it was kind of interesting and fun. Um, Like I said, starting next week, we are going to look at Cersei and then Medea. um, And so and a few others. And we're going to get to Nike for sure, because I want to talk about Nike and her, all of her representations um, and a few others, um, a few other, perhaps not all goddesses, but certainly divine women or women of the divine feminine or uh, with divine power. And so thank you for following me again. If you want to follow me on my trips or my research, um, please feel free to do so on Artemis expert across I don't know, all the social media and um, feel free to share this and tell your friends about it and uh, leave any questions you might have, especially for the finale in the comments or any feedback you might have in the comments. Uh, I really appreciate reading your comments. It, it makes me, it makes my day. Yeah. So thanks so much for watching. Have a great rest of your weekend and I'll see you next week, Friday. All right. Bye y'all.